Hi, everyone, and welcome to SACSA's To Practice, a practitioner skill building process for the field from two folks who don't know it all, but have and will continue to think a lot about it. Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surratt. I am an Associate Vice President at James Madison University. And I'm Kate Radford. I serve as the Director for Leadership Education and Development in the Center for Student Leadership and Engagement at Clemson University. So just to catch up a bit in case you've missed some of our previous episodes or seasons of To Practice, Miles and I used to work together in an office that was about half graduate students and spent a lot of time chatting during that time working together about the skills that we felt like practical skills that our students needed to thrive in student affairs. Um, And this podcast is really born of that realization. We've spent a lot of time thinking through those practical skills, um, and we want to spend this time to share those reflections, to continue to hone our own skills as practitioners, and to give us a chance to sit down and stay in conversation with one another. So we're doing that through a grouping of seasons, each based around a specific skill, and you are catching us here in the midst of our season about hiring. All right, but before we talk about hiring, we need to get to some pop culture, true or false. So here we test Kate's immense pop culture knowledge and uh, really stretch the the frontiers of that vast, vast, uh, w- let's call it wilderness of Kate's pop culture knowledge. Um, Kate, are you ready for the theme for this time around? I am, yeah. Okay, so uh, I know that uh, both of your children dressed up as characters from star wars um this time around so i thought i would that seems like a real area of strength for yours and so i thought i would uh give you a a star wars property so this could be a movie or a television show and you tell me whether that's a real thing or a fake thing how does that sound oh boy this sounds great to be clear my knowledge ends at purchasing those two costumes for my children but here we go well great all right the first one the first jedi is that a real movie or a fake movie that i've made up um i'm gonna start out solid here that is fake because it's the last jedi right kate you're doing great one (laughs) of one there we go my kids are gonna be so proud of me Look at that. It is The Last Jedi. Yes. This is good. This is like, it's like transfer of knowledge that's happened. Just like, it's like um, osmosis, except that's water. So not diffusion, right? It's like, I just am around it. My kids talk about it. So I'm learning some things. Yeah. Not actually seen The Last Jedi, but I've heard that phrase used before. Well, there you go. Okay. I've got it. I've got the next one for you. Okay. Is Storm Wars an animated Star Wars show or not did i make that up storm wars um well as i selected costumes or tried to get costumes i didn't select them my kids were very clear about what they wanted to be um my youngest porter really wanted to be a storm trooper so i know that that's a thing um, he kept differentiating between something else, which now I can't remember. So that's not added knowledge that's helping me in this moment. I'm going to say that that is true. That's a real thing. That is a fake thing. There's a, a TV show called The Clone Wars, which is probably made more complicated for you because the clones were like the predecessors of the stormtroopers. So that's the word I was looking for was clone troopers because I kept finding costumes and he wanted to be. Now I can't remember which one he wanted to be. He wanted to be one or the other, and whatever one I, he wanted to be, I couldn't find. I kept finding the other one. So and he'd be like, "No, that's not a clone trooper. That's a stormtrooper." <sighs> I couldn't tell the difference, but he clearly could. I think he probably wanted to be. It's a lot easier to find stormtrooper costumes. Okay. Uh, it's been like a big part of the sort of motif of Star Wars for a long time. Clone troopers are uh, less problematic, I would say, and um, definitely would be harder to find. I would think. I think that's yeah. Things what he wanted to be. He ended up being the Mandalorian, so totally different, I think. Right, but anyway. Uh, well, you know that's complicated too because uh, clones who stormtroopers are based on. We're mm-hmm. all based on Mandalorians from the get-go, so which is a specific planet. But anyway, we don't we don't really need to get oh, into wait. that. Um, okay, you ready for the next one? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Fall of Skywalker. 
that a real thing or not? I'm not even going to say whether it's uh, like what kind of thing it is. Fall of Skywalker. No, this is like an opposite situation again. Like question one, it's the rise of Skywalker, right? Or the rise of somebody. Gosh, Kate, you're doing great. It is rise of Skywalker. Look at that. I'm telling you. Two of three. You really got these movies down. It's you know, purely because my children have begged to watch them and I have to search for them on Disney. And so I know the titles because I've searched. I don't know anything what happens in those movies, but I could pull them up on Disney Plus for them. Gosh, you know a lot about Star Wars just from just from searching, you know. I do, yeah. All right, uh, last one. First okay. hope. First hope. Is that a real thing or a fake thing? First hope. I think that that is false, but I don't know what it really is. I think there is something with the word hope, but I don't think it's first hope, last hope, first hope. I don't think it's either of those. I don't I know said, what it is. I said first hope, but you yeah, don't I think, either. I think that's false. It is false. It's a new hope. That's what the a original hope. movie is called. Star Wars, yeah. a new hope. See, I knew there was a hope. I just couldn't remember what it was. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Three or four, Kate. You're a Star Wars expert, I would say. I feel like it basically that's like tying your best score ever yes i wish I, what was my do you remember what my other topic was that i i really need to write these things down as my you know the areas that i have such expertise in with 75 percent. i think you did well on if i recall correctly i think you did uh well on the um is this a reality show or not i, mm. think, you did well on, I think you did well on that one yeah yeah i do think that's right okay yeah. Good. I'm just adding this. I'm probably gonna put it on my resume, you know, really these skill areas I feel like people should know about. Yeah, I think so. I'll mock that up for you. Yeah, if you could help me with that section, yeah. new section of my resume. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can start advertising for the podcast going forward with a fake resume I make up for you. I think that could be fun. God, I love these ideas. Love them. Um, okay, were you ready for your question about whether the song title I'm about to give you is a true early 2000s emo pop punk song or if I've made it up? Yeah, I'm ready for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the song title this week is I Woke Up on a Bus. Is I that woke, a real song title? I Woke Up on a Bus. Um, well, you know, I, I think that there's uh, obviously like, how could I, I could start cheating on this. I did realize that I could start just like looking at sort of uh, the song titles for uh, these like niche emo bands that you like, but I think that that would take some fun out of it. So we're operating under the assumption that there's like 87 people alive that actually know whether this is real or not. And so it's kind of impossible. So I, every time I'm just sort of having the to to guess whether you've done a slight modification or just come up with something fun or you're just giving me the real deal. Um, last two times you have given me the real thing, and so um, I'm I'm just gonna stick with the process here, and I'm gonna guess that this is real. Man, it is not. This is a variation of one of my favorite something corporate songs, which I would argue way more than 87 people know something corporate. Thank you very much. And the song is I woke up in a car. So it's it's a good one. It's a really good one. I think what we're like really finding out here is that you're better at tricking me than I am at tricking you. Hmm, Interesting. Mm -hmm. I think I think that's what we landed on. Um, just for everybody who's interested, something corporate has three hundred eighty-eight thousand uh, monthly listeners on Spotify. So that's that a lot. Is, that's more than eighty-seven. Yeah. Yeah, I love something corporate. Something corporate. Fun fact: um, many people are familiar with something corporate, but also many people are familiar within the. Um, I don't know if I would call them like spinoffs. I don't know. Andrew Mac- McMahon, I don't even know how you say his name, um, was the lead singer of something corporate. And then he became the lead singer um, of like several other bands. But most famously, I think, is the like Andrew McMahon um, in the wilderness like name. Is that familiar at all to you? <laughs> nope. 
Oh, come on. He, there was a song that was like really popular. Hold on. Let me think what it was. Um, shoot. What was that song called? Cecilia and the Satellite. Yes. It was like on sure. popular radio. Anyway, Andrew Mahone, I think is how you say his name. He was with something corporate. Then it became, then it Jack's Mannequin, which is also one of my favorite bands. That was early, early 2000s as well into like probably 2010, somewhere in that range. So but yeah, the his solo work, the like Andrew McMahon in the wilderness. I don't know if that's how you say his name. As I'm saying it, I just don't. M-C-M-A-H-O-N. I feel like there's another way you're supposed to say that, that I'm just not messing up. McMahon. Anyway, it's not important. It is important that you should know that song and you should go listen to it. It's Cecilia and the Satellite. It's really sweet. He wrote it about his newborn daughter. Oh, well, that sounds nice. Yeah, I think you'd like him. Anyway, everyone that's listening, you're welcome for all these great music recs you've been getting the last couple of weeks because I'm confident that everyone switches immediately from listening to our podcast to going and checking out these bands. So, yeah, yeah, I assume that that's what's happening as well. Mm -hmm. I assume so as well, and I will believe it in my head. So just let me have it. Okay. All right. You ready to talk about some other stuff here, like actual to practice stuff? Um, yeah, I, I think I, I'm like right there on the, the frontier of my, uh, of my emo band conversation, uh, uh, uh interest for today. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. That's fine. That's fine. Hit your max. I get it. All right. So we mentioned that we're in the middle here of talking about hiring. We've really, um, I hope set up this season in the first two episodes to sort of encourage folks to be thinking about hiring a little different that we've acknowledged that we're in a new normal um, and that's going to require some shift. Um, so that's really how we wanted to set up this season. And we're, we're hopeful that this will help people as they're headed into the main spring hiring season. Um, so today we're going to talk more about the like logistics. Um, I think I kind of have a catch-all phrase there, of logistics of hiring. Um, so Miles, let's start here. How do you um, think about starting to put together a hiring committee? And maybe what does that committee play? Like what role do they play in the experience of hiring for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, I think that this is an area where we maybe are continuing to think about like where the new normal lives. So I think typically folks have thought about the primary concern was about like how this person would be received on campus. And so there was this real desire to get stakeholder groups together to provide, to have this person have like a mandate once they arrive. You know, you want this office that you partner with on this program and you want, um, to be excited about this person and this other part of your department where you've got key connections, you're going to bring somebody in from over there because you want this, you want this mandate. Um, and I tend to think that folks probably need to think more about who's going to actually help you recruit for these positions, who's going to be an active advocate, friendly resource, um, going to be somebody that's going to help you create this pro candidate experience. Again, this is shifting from like vetting to like a mutual exchange of information. And, um, and so I think, think about, you know, like I, I would say that that would be the starting point is like, who is going to help bring folks in and less who is going like, ultimately, you know, like it's going to be your job to build those bridges. And there may be a world in which you can do both of these things. I don't see them as being necessarily in conflict with one another. Um, but, you know, if you're, if you're going to bring in like, you know, crusty old curmudgeon from X office around campus who, um, you know, like never goes to conferences, doesn't know anybody outside of your institution. They're like a key stakeholder here, but they're also going to come in and they're going to be a lot for you to manage in terms of like their, vibe and experience once they're here, you know, and they're also going to be like, I'm going to rake this person over the coals because you've hired with this person before. And you know, that's how they work. Um, like, I think you probably are going to need to run some interference with your crusty old curmudgeon to help this person be successful one way or another. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think there's also another way to think about this. And again, you can, you can stack several of these things within one committee, but I think it's also good to think about like who would benefit from the experience of being a part of this. Um, 
I always have tried to target folks that are going into the job search on committees um, because I think that it helps provide this like other side. So you're like second year grad student from around campus or from your department um, who, um, you know, could really benefit from that. But I think it ultimately all comes back to who's going to help you get candidates and then whose feedback do you actually need? Who's and not even need who's going to who do you want? Who do you want to learn more from um, once they are, you know, once they're they're uh, in the process? So, you know, like if you don't want somebody's feedback and you don't need that feedback, but you're doing it because it's like a political choice. And this is different at different levels. And I also understand that, too. Um, but if you don't actually want that feedback, it's not going to be beneficial, then I think I, I would I would think through that in terms of composition. From a role standpoint, um, what role does the committee play? That is different on different campuses and sometimes is different even in some departments. There are institutions that have like a real, let's, you might call it dogma, you might call it um, just culture. You may say that this is just sort of an expectation where um, sometimes the committee is actually driving the process and the eventual supervisor is not really involved at all in the process that you sort of, and that person may pick the committee, but then they hand it over to the committee and then they're, and then they're pretty much out of it. Um, another way to think about it is sometimes they support the supervisor who is driving the process. And I think that tends to be the two ways that you do it. Either the supervisor is the chair or they are not the chair. And that can really vary depending on the departmental culture and the institutional culture. Um, it also depends on level too. I think the higher the position, the more likely it is to be managed by a committee. Um, you know, like I think it's pretty rare to find a VP search that um, that a president is chairing and even um, probably even like a, you know, like an AVP level as well. Um, you don't tend to see folks. And I think that that I think that that is based on the idea that these are like broad mandates that are needed on campus. But I also think it's based on the idea that those people are too busy to do their own hiring, which. Yeah, maybe that's true. I don't know. But, you know, huge, you know, like there's probably nothing more important than folks do than hire. So, um, yeah, so those are sort of how people think about it. My personal opinion is to centralize the process with the hiring manager. Because ultimately that's the person that's gonna be responsible for this, gonna be responsible for this person's day-to-day -day job duties, but also gonna be the person that's gonna be most uh, connected to whether that, that person's gonna be successful on campus. And so um, I would centralize it with the hiring manager. That tends to be how I, I run things. Um, and then you have to put people and processes around that person to protect against bias. Um, you have to have people who are actively involved in the construction of the process that are going to help reduce bias. And then you also have a process in which it's not the hiring manager just running roughshod through the process and not getting feedback from anybody at any point. Um, and so um, that 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 is my personal opinion. And I think the we're going to shift the onus of this to a committee and keep it away from the hiring manager is done from an equity standpoint, which I definitely agree with and support in theory. I just don't think that that actually reduces bias. You know, like if you create a committee that is, you know, like aligned with sort of homogeneity and sameness, um, you can, you, you know, you can see bias exist just as acutely in that space. Um, and sometimes perhaps even more so where there's sort of this like voice of sameness that can kind of drown out difference um, in a way that an individual person, um, if they're committed to doing, you know, to doing that um, and engaging in equitable hiring would not. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't think that there is like definitively a right way or a wrong way to do this. I think that everybody just, you know, like feels differently about it. I do think that like if you're starting from a, I'm too busy to do this, so I need to give it to other people. Um, if you're the president, OK, fine. But other than that, I think that you need to like probably take a breath and rethink that approach because, you know, like. What also takes a ton of time is having a problem employee. Um, so. 
you know, that's going to well, also takes time. a ton of time is all the things that follow that, right? Like if you don't have time for hiring, are you going to have time for good onboarding? Are you going to have time for good training? You know, all of the things that, you know, the hiring, yes, as we've talked about is a lot of work and it's going to, it is time consuming and, but it's, it's not the only time consuming or difficult part of this process. So. Yeah. Yeah. So Kate, what are, what are your thoughts? Any, any things that you think through in terms of composition and role? Yeah. Well, the first thing I was going to say is I hadn't thought about the way that you just described um, uh, sort of like where the process is centralized. I, I've been a part, as you described, like of sort of all sort of iterations of that, right, of um, people making a very clear distinction between this is a screening committee versus this is a selection committee, right? Those things are different. So if you think about pulling committee together, that is purely just screening applicants, to get them ready for a hiring manager to make a decision. That's a very different process than a committee being a part of the full selection process. Um, I've been a part of, you know, I've, I've served on chaired committees of hiring for someone else. Um, so yeah, I think being a part of all those, they have definitely been a part of the normal until now, but I agree with you that I think the new normal does maybe necessitate that we think about that differently. Like I, I think we talked about last week, the amount of work that needs to go into sort of the early phases of this, of the hiring and the posting and the like getting people onboarded or not onboarded, but getting people in the pool. Um, and I, I don't know, as I think about that, I just, I don't know how you do that as, um, as a man hiring manager that's not involved in the process. I, that just feels like you lose so much of the um, recruiting capability or, um, recruiting potential that you have in a, in a hiring process if you are not a part of that process. And we've talked about like the days of screening seem to be gone, right? We have smaller pools, at least right now. I know you have iterated and um, reiterated that that is may not be the normal forever, but right now the normal is that you have a smaller pool. And so you know, we're not in these days where we're, we have this big committee that's going to go through hundreds and hundreds of applications and, and pull out the cream of the crop and then present them to a hiring manager. I mean, it's going to be looking for folks that could be a good fit that we may not be, um, you know, always looking for. And so I think the hiring manager really has to be sort of a part of that process. So just from a, a comment perspective, um, I think that that, that is, that part of the process and that part of the committee is very different in this new normal. So I would encourage folks to, to think about that. Um, in terms of like composition broadly and um, the role of the committee, um, I think my, I would agree with you that obviously the primary role of a committee um, is to help you identify and recruit the best candidate. And I think that, again, back to that new normal piece that in the past we have thought about the role is to help identify. And now I think it is that identify and recruit piece at a heavier level. So um, all the things you said, right, who can help you think differently about the candidates, who can, um, who's invested, those things are all important. But really asking that question of who is a good recruiter and who's going to help you to um make this the role appealing and to, and to to give a a fair assessment of what it's like to um be at your institution and to be in this type of role and i think we need people who can speak openly about that and can um share information that will help a candidate to make a good decision about whether this is the right place for them um i really appreciated your thoughts about um you know, inviting grad students, especially if you have a student affairs program to be a part of that and to kind of see what the, the job search process looks like from the other side. I also think those folks have great perspective to bring and can share, um, you know, share a meaningful experience of what they've seen over two years, but are also typically not the people that are um, like, you know, have been there for decades and have sort of um, a one side of view maybe of, of the role of the institution, whatever that might be. The other people that we haven't talked about yet that I think is important noting if you're, you know, I hope people are already doing this, but how are you including undergraduate students on your committee, I think is, is a really important piece. Um, you know, I think that sometimes our undergrad students are the best recruiters we have, right? Like that is a chance for a candidate from the, throughout the entire process, not just like a, oh, come to campus and participate in a, in a panel with, you know, undergrad students that you might work with, but how can you have those folks from the very beginning? So that they can speak to the student experience, the candidates can see what it's like to interact with your student body, you know, like find someone who I think is 
a great representation of your student population. But I think that that is a really, really important piece. Um, I also think, you know, you, you mentioned this about um, sort of the old practice maybe was like finding people that then were going to help to fulfill this like mandate you might have for this person on campus. But I do think it's, and I agree, we need to move away from that in some ways, but I do think it's important to continue to think about who do you maybe need some buy-in from? Maybe is there, um, especially is, you know, is there a, a partnership you've been asked to cultivate? Is there a project that you're working on that you've been asked to like push forward? And and how can you make sure that people feel heard and a part of the process of who they're going to get to work with on that um, and who's going to work well together? So I do think that you still have to keep that piece in mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I really like the the point about undergraduates and I, and I think that that's such a, such an important piece. I mean, I think everybody wants to have a better feeling about what the you know, about what the students are going to be like. My favorite part of my interview experience here at JMU was definitely meeting meeting with the students and stayed in contact with those, you know, with those students, you know, you know, through through their time here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I think that is I think in terms of those folks being great recruiters, that tends to be like I think a lot of people walk away feeling like that was my favorite part of the interview. Um and which which totally makes sense. And I think sometimes just gets lost in the lost in the wash. Um, well, I think there's an assumption that the undergraduate students are either too busy to be on the committee, which very well may be true. I think our undergraduate students are very busy people, um, particularly the ones that you might want on a committee who are, you know, very involved and might have good perspective to share. Um, but I think. I don't know, I feel like the sort of the resounding message in this season is like all of it is worth the time, right? Like it's worth the time to figure out how you can include an undergrad student who, yeah, their schedule might not be super conducive to this process. But if you can think about that in advance and set up a way for them to be involved, I think it's possible. And it's just, it may take a little extra work, but I think the worth it, the work is worth it for sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that buy-in piece, I, I think that... Um, I think that my feeling on that is that I, I just think that we have to, um, I don't, I, I don't know that I've ever felt like I deserve to be a part of somebody else's process. Um, mm. you know, like I just, I don't, even when I, even when I work closely with someone, um, and other people may feel differently. That doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that they don't, or other people don't feel that way. But I also think that that like buy-in piece, um, it just depends on like how that is shaped, you know, like if you know that the process of, of generating that buy-in is going to, you know, like diminish your process in some way, whether that's like how they're representing the university to the candidate, whether it's slowing you down, whether it's, you know, like, it's just, it's sort of like, again, it's sort of like putting a university need over a candidate need. Um, and I think it just depends on like who that partner is, you know, like, do they fit, you know, like, do they, do they fit the other things that you're saying that you want in terms of how you're creating this pro candidate experience? Or is this, you know, like you trying to overcome an obstacle that may or may not exist on your campus, um, in, in reality. Um, so I don't know. I, I just, I, I, I think that that to me, that is just like, part of this mindset that existed beforehand that I just think we have to like, we have to ask some hard questions about um, for now. Yeah, I think it's just, it's like a fine line, right? It's like, I think for me, a pro candidate experience is a really honest experience. It's like them coming and seeing, you know, I don't want anyone to ever feel like it was like a bait and switch, right? Like I was presented one thing in an interview process and then I got here and it was so different. Um, So it's like, it's finding that balance of like it being a very honest experience, but also, um, you know, maintaining this, the, the candidates experience or the candidate need above, like you said, the university need. And and I think sometimes that gets a little blurry, right? Cause I think part of an honest pro candidate experience is like, these are the people that when you get here, there's going to be an expectation to work with. And so like, let's, let's give you a chance to have some exposure to them and to hear from them, like what their priorities are and whether you feel like you align with those. Um, but I agree with you. I think we have to, we have to balance that with, all the other factors that you noted. So I think it's, it's tough. It's a, it's a blurry line for me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think it, I think it ultimately comes down to like, um, I think, I think the honest piece is part of it, but I do think there's also like, 
are we projecting our own, you know, like I have this practice when people come to a place of like, really not like overlaying my assumptions about partners or people in the department onto other people. Cause I want them to, you know, if it's a matter of safety or a matter of like, you know, like known trust in terms of a project issue. But oftentimes I, I just don't want to put my frustration onto somebody else's experience because somebody could end right. up being like a really positive partner or things could change. And I think some of it gets into like, is this us trying to control something that we can't actually control in terms of what their experience is going to be like? And are we potentially projecting some stuff, you know, onto them and then putting that into this experience? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. This is probably a pretty probably a pretty minor point honestly but (laughs) um anyway all right so Kate how do you think um how do you think about timeline in terms of expediency and placement during the calendar year when you're thinking about um when you're thinking about the logistics of this well the calendar year part of that question is sort of an interesting factor because I think that again, back to this new normal like I I think we're we're doing hiring processes at different times than I've ever done them in the past, right? Like there's always been a really traditional hiring season. People tended to stay until a certain point. And then, right, they like everyone, like sort of the domino effect that happens of people leaving and then positions opening. Like it's, there's been a very traditional hiring season. Um, And at least from what I've seen, that hiring season is like all over the place right now. People are leaving They're um, people aren't necessarily staying out full semesters. They're finding jobs maybe outside of higher education where that calendar doesn't really matter. Um, So, so I think for me, the calendar year question is totally dictated by um, the expediency part of this, right? I think that um, you have to situate your hiring process in a time where you know that you can do it in a timely manner and do it with um, the time and effort that it's going to require. And that looks different for everybody. Um, People's busy seasons look different. Um, Maybe, you know, you have like a, a small window where you have that time. So um, I guess my advice would be just don't just jump in, right? Don't just like, well, I'll get it posted and then we'll figure out the process. Um, I have learned that that is, I think, the worst way to go about this. I think that you have to set it up with some intention from the beginning or um, you're pretty likely for it to, to go off the rails. Um, so I think having a plan from literally like posting through what's your ideal start date, right? Like laying out a timeline, making sure that that fits um, reasonably within any like university closures that you might have, um, you know, vacations that, you know, important people that would need to be a part of the process might not be there for. So um, really setting up the process and not just hoping like, well, we'll get it started and then it'll all work out. <laughs> um, so don't just jump in, have a plan and then ask people to commit to the plan. Um, I think you um, can run a quick um but well done search if everyone is sort of on the same page about what needs to happen. And I think you have to hold people accountable to that quick, quick process. Um, It's pretty easy for people to be like, ah, can I, can we get another week to review these? Right. And another week turns into two weeks, turns into three weeks. And then like your timeline is knocked off. I get that there's going to be times where you're going to have to be flexible. Things are going to happen. But I also think as much as possible, being really clear about your expectations of what you're looking for in the process as the hiring manager um, or the chair of a search committee or screening committee. Um, And then in giving people an out, right? Like I always extend an invitation to people and say like, this is my timeline. This is my plan. Here's like where I anticipate you being involved. And um, if you're available, I would love for you to be a part, right? Or if you have the time, I'd love for you to be a part. Um, but making sure that you're setting those expectations and then holding people accountable to them as you move. Um, I do think there's a lot that you can do to, as the hiring manager to facilitate, um, a a quick process. I keep saying quick. I don't mean quick as in like quick and not well done, right? Expedient is, I guess the word I'm looking for, right? That we're, we're trying to run a process that is not, um, that doesn't lag, that doesn't, like go on for an unnecessary amount of time because I don't think that that's particularly helpful for candidates. Um, I think moving through more quickly or for campus partners, I think like for everyone involved in the process, it is better if we can keep the process moving um, as quickly as as we're able to. So I think things you can do as a hiring manager to make that happen is, is to remove like as many barriers as possible. So, you know, having a process, like I said, a timeline really laid out, um, 
having your your rubric like ready in advance, like a, a, an evaluation system of some sort already set up. Of course, I would recommend that you take feedback from the committee on that to a point, right? Like if there's something that you've glaringly missed, I hope that you will create room for people to say like, hey, I think we should also make sure we're evaluating on this or that we have this factored in, um, but give people a starting point. So you're not like coming into a meeting like, okay, we're hiring. What are we looking for? Right. Like having that set up a little bit more um, in advance. I think the same thing when you get, we'll talk about this in our next episode, but when we get to the interview process, um, like having pre-drafted questions that you want the committee to ask, but again, leaving room for them to receive, so you receive feedback on adjusting those um, having an easy, like sort of filing and sorting system. So people have access to the things that they need. Um, this may sound really simple, but like sending calendar invites in advance, right? Like our holds for this is when we're reviewing so that people have it on their calendars and, and sort of see the process fully laid out. I think there is work, as we've said, of every phase of this, there's work to be done as the hiring manager to, um, to make the process go smoothly. And that may mean, um, some heavy logistical, like administrative work on your end as the, as the hiring manager. Um, but I do think that that, th- that stuff matters to keep people on the process and keep the the pace that we're looking for, um, to keep moving. So how about you, Miles? Yeah. I mean, folks just have to know that if you don't go quickly, it, you're going to lose people. Yep. You know, like I, I you know, like there is there's a world in which I think we just sort of assume that the way the university operates is the way the university operates at JMU we have to post our jobs for 30 days it doesn't mean you know within that 30-day context that the whole you know like that is that is a baked in baked in expectation um but it you know and that and that is legitimately significantly slower than many places are going then many places are going to operate we're not just i think the challenge is, is like we're not just competing against other schools now who are also slow and so you have to know that um i i loved everything that you talked about in terms of like thinking through everything ahead of time um you know like it it will be you know it will be quicker for folks uh, and if you are giving them the dates and the deadlines ahead of time, you know, like it's just too, it's too cumbersome to try to pivot in real time. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't do that. Um, and it also, you know, like if the pools are smaller then you know, we're not, when you were having to review a hundred applications, we're talking about probably, you know, two thirds of a day that everybody's got to set aside, which is a real challenge. Talking about reviewing, you know, optimistically 20 applications, you know, we're talking about a couple of hours, which is just a different kind of thing. And so you can, I think people can, you know, can start to anticipate some of that. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, the setting aside time piece also makes me think back to like the who's on the committee piece, right? And sometimes I probably underestimate, um, the like network around people or a network of support around people that might be necessary for um, people to be involved. I'm not a person that believes like when you ask someone to be on your screening committee, you need to like get permission from their supervisor first. That's just like, I think people should be able to manage their time and they can have that conversation with their supervisor about like whether they have the time to do that. I think that um, that for just doesn't typically sit well with me. Um, But I do think making sure that you are communicating to to the people that are on the committee about sort of getting that um, support from around them. Um, I don't think it ever hurts to to do like a, a thank you, right? Email to a supervisor to say, I really appreciate this person's perspective and time on this committee because you're probably going to be in a boat mm-hmm. of doing that hiring later. But um, I think, you know, just thinking about the, the time, like you mentioned, of, of what needs to go into it and making sure that to me, that's part of removing another barrier too, is right. Remo- maybe it's not removing a barrier, but it's like easing the path a little bit for people to be invested in your process is to, um, to make sure that people around them are supportive and to show your appreciation to those people as well. Cause yeah, I think you're right. We're not in the days where we're taking a day to review applicants. Um, but it's still hours of work that people are dedicating to this. So, um, even if the pools are smaller, it's still, it still can be time intensive at times. Mm-hmm. So so Miles, what are, um, as we think about that time can, time intensive piece of the review of applicants and stuff like that, what are some, um, maybe some standard ways and some different ways you 
can think of to organize your review of applications? Well, I mean, I think you hit on most of those, those like really good practices in terms of standard, you know, I, I think, um, I think the only thing that I would add is as you're setting that up, a couple of things to think through um, is like how you're organizing your own processing of things. And so um, the committee, I, I find generally appreciates if you're able to turn their scores around really quickly, which tends to just be an organization thing. You know, like if you set up your stuff um, well on the front end and you can sort of immediately turn things around for them, it's going to help with the whole process. I would also say as you're building out your rubric for how you're going to do that, um, I would avoid neutral scoring options. Like you just, you know, like mm-hmm. the problem is, is like, and I think I'll, I'll get to this in just a second, but people tend to not have particularly strong opinions on people based on paper. And so if you have, you're going to end up with this like very muddy middle that is just very yeah. gray in terms of how to interpret things. And so um I, I would just avoid that um, in terms of like how to get like a little bit different in terms of thinking about this. Um, can you build a process where you can offer your first round interviews within 48 hours of the application closing? I mean, that that sounds kind of wild, but let's assume that most of the applications are coming in well in advance of the application closing. Folks can go ahead and be reviewing those can go ahead and be reviewing those. Um, and then, you know, like you're just asking people the day that the application closes the next morning to hold a little bit of additional time to do that final processing. They can send that, send that information to you, you block, you know, an hour to get the scores together. And then literally that afternoon or the next morning, you can go ahead and plan to meet with the committee to sit down. The information is going to be the freshest for the committee. And so you can get that out. What I think would help with that gets to my next question, which is, can you reduce your dependency on application materials? So let's just assume that we, that cover, and I say this as somebody who works for the Career Center. So I hope for any of my career colleagues that you'll forgive this, forgive this perspective. But let's just assume that cover letters and resumes are not a particularly good way to determine whether somebody's going to be good at the job. And the more information you can get about those people, the better you're going to be able to determine that. Um, So can you reduce your dependency on application materials by maximizing the number of interviews? So you've got 15 people that apply for a job and, you know, like eight of them meet your minimum qualifications. There's three of them that you're not really excited about based on the based on the paper materials. But let's just go ahead and offer eight. Let's everybody who meets the qualifications we're going to meet with because we don't actually know because we ended up in. And I think folks are, you know, if we're honest with ourselves from a hiring standpoint, we probably know that we don't actually know based on that review. Otherwise, why would I have just given advice about getting rid of a neutral scoring option? Everybody's going through that being like, I'm not really sure. I don't really I'll just give them a three out of five. Yep. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't really know because you don't know. And oftentimes people who seem really qualified can be a total, you know, can be a total bait and switch. I can think of several colleagues who I'm sure come off well on paper and I worked with them and I don't think that they should come off that well on paper. And so um I you know, I think that can you reduce your dependency on those materials by maximizing the number of interviews? And it becomes a lot easier to decide who you're going to interview if you're not being super picky about who you're going to interview and you're not like sc- sort of scraping and clawing at the at the pool um, and reducing that. And it's also going to make it where you're more likely to be successful. Are those three people that I referenced not super likely to get the job? Sure, I guess not. But do you know that for sure? And can you be really surprised by people as you go through the process? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, those are a couple of a couple of ways that I've thought through that. How have you thought through that, Kate? Yeah, I mean, I think similar. Similarly, um, I think some questions that I would maybe ask myself as I think about different ways to organize a review. I think there is a pretty like standard setup. I think your point about having some good organization is, is super important on that. Um, I think this is again, not the world that we are currently in. If we were in a, a, you know, a three to four years ago world of getting hundreds of applicants for 
you know, entry level positions that I was hiring for at that time. Um, I think one of the questions to ask to to keep the process moving is, does every person need to review every applicant? Is there a way to to think about that? I, I have I will give the caveat of I have not figured out a way to do that um, in a in a meaningful way where not every person does, because I think it's hard to then compare across and score and stuff like that. But I do think that that's a question worth asking of um, how you think about your time and each person on the committee's time and do they need to review every person or are certain people reviewing for certain things or how can you think about that differently rather than just throwing a sack of resumes at every person and saying, give me a score. Um, the other thing that I think is maybe a, a different way to score or to think about it is, is to not think about score at all. Um, mm. I personally really believe that um, the numbers end up pretty meaningless. Like I think your point about the neutrals, the like, I'm not really sure. So I'm just going to give like threes across the board. And all of a sudden I've given everyone a three or I score much harder than you score. Like I just, there are very few search processes where I can think about where like we got a wrong number at the end. And I was like, this is very indicative of exactly what we all are thinking and, and is our final list, right? Like there's always some sort of kind of conversation there. Um, I think we do that because we want to, you know, as much as possible, make this a fair process. Um, and we need like those numbers so that we're not just going off a gut feeling, right? Like, well, I kind of like this person, but not really having um, any kind of information to back that up. Um, but I think if you find yourself in a situation where um, you are, you know, you're, you can do what you've just described, which is to to rely a lot more on the interview process, then I think you, you can look at folks and just to look of, do we feel like we want to, you know, move this person forward or not? Um, I think you still like want some sort of rubric of like, here's the things that we are looking for. Um, but I don't always know that like a number score is the best way to assess that. I've done like a red light, yellow light, green light sort of mm. system in the past that I think has made the process a lot easier for people who are reviewing because they don't get hung up on like, oh, is this a three or a four answer? It's like a, yes, it's a, I feel like I would at least want to know more about this person response. And that can be like indicated with a green or a yellow, right? Um, I think it helps to typically the consensus um, is a little bit easier to get to with that. I think, um, you know, it it sometimes does mean more follow-up conversation of like, okay, why, why, what, what was your like, hold up? Why did you give them a yellow instead of a green? Or like, um, I think it's really helpful to see like a red versus a green of like, okay, something like you've saw something that you like are very strongly against us interviewing this person. And I like green lighted them. So why is that? Um, and I think that typically you get to a better conversation with that um, and more information about what people saw than if you have a number. Cause I think what happens with the numbers is someone's like, oh, I just grade harder. Well, like, are you grading everyone harder? Or is it this candidate that you graded harder? Um, so I think thinking about some different ways to do that can also be helpful. And um, yeah, the red light, yellow light, green light thing has worked has worked for me on some processes. Um, but I think your point about can we just can we can we utilize the interview more is um, is one that I know you and I share a sentiment about, and I think have been a part of processes together where we have probably interviewed more people than folks would like to because we felt like that was where we got the best information. And so again, it might be. Um, investing a little bit more time, but I, I would echo your your sentiment there. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's a I think that's a super interesting thought. I had um, I have not done a process like that before, and I think there's definitely there could be could be something really to that in terms of you know in terms of how that in terms of how that works, and then you can sort of walk out of there that that could really couple nicely with that maximize folks in terms of like well if it's yellow and green let's go. Because we don't, yeah. you know, we don't know if it's red. Okay, fine. But like, if it's yellow or green, yeah, let's let's sort of let's feel that out. Now there may yeah. be some there may be some HR restrictions in terms of how we in terms of how we do that. But yeah, uh, well, yeah. I think it could be like a combination, right? Like if you do have HR standards of you have to have like a a rubric score, like maybe the rubric score is, or I would think it is what gets people to their their color indicator, but the color might help us to figure out in the conversation about exactly what you've just described. Like if we're unsure, if they're yellow, cause we just really don't know versus like, I saw something that is deducting points down. Um, then I think that, that, that gets us to a more, again, a pro candidate experience and us seeing more, more people and giving them a chance to, 
um, tell us who they are in an interview setting. Mm -hmm. Well, as we wrap up, Miles, um, always want to uh, include a resource to share. Um, what have you got? Uh, so I think in terms of there's a there's a couple of interesting books out there that sort of help think through how bias manifests in, in decision making processes. Um, both of them have the word noise in it, interestingly. Um, I have read a good portion of noise by uh, Kahneman at all. Um, and that book has gotten a lot of praise. I struggled with it um, and didn't get as much from it, um, but I would recommend The Signal of the Noise by Nate Silver, which came out um, several years ago at this point, but I think is helpful in thinking through how to look, how to look for uh, trends and indicators um, and sort of zone other stuff out. And I think that's helpful in terms of thinking about a review process for folks in particular. What about you, Kate? Yeah, I um, immediately sort of thought about in as I was preparing for this week, um, and we didn't really touch on it a whole lot, but how, well, we touched on it in terms of bias, we didn't touch on um, as much this piece of it. And I, I think I was thinking about how do we educate our committee, right? So I think that that is a, a, a first step. And I probably was remiss in not saying that as I talked about the process and the logistics and removing the barriers and all that. I think maybe step one is always... Um, even if folks have served on hiring committees and they're well aware of HR processes and the legalities of that, and also are aware of implicit bias, um, I think having a reminder conversation about that and doing some education, even if briefly with your committee on the front end is really important. Um, I think sometimes just stating some of the things we may think we already know um, are a, a healthy reminder to us as we engage in a new process. Um, and so I was really looking for resources sort of around um, minimizing bias and thinking about that and stumbled across an article um, on talentintelligence.com. I'm going to be honest, I don't know anything about that website and it may not be a reputable source, but I found an article um, about um, affinity bias and thinking about how we how that may come into play in determining cultural fit. And I, I liked that they talked about some pieces around um, even before we meet the candidate, how is affinity bias playing in and how does the concept of fit um, have bias, right, baked into it. Um, so yeah, some good tips on there. Um, again, it's on talentintelligence.com and it's the article is called Is Affinity Bias Involved in Determining Cultural Fit? So I hope that that will be helpful. All right. Well, Kate, thanks for that recommendation. I hope that that is, um, you know, not uh, some sort of shady website. And um, I suspect. I hope so too. Yeah. If so, I'm I'm sorry, everyone. I got a I got a good feeling. I I like the sound of it. Um, and that's a that's an interesting point. I'm going to make sure to read it. Um, so anyway, thanks to everyone for joining us for To Practice presented by SACSA. You can get more about SACSA, the Southern Association for College Student Affairs, on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SACSA fan page, on Twitter at SACSA tweets, on Instagram at SACSA grams. And don't forget to sign up for the SACSA alert. Kate, anything to add? I don't think so. Thanks for listening. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.